So in this past two weeks alone, I've had two things happen that I've been waiting for for a very long time. First of all, I was able to finally be reunited with my parents after almost a year apart. Like many others, we've been separated by the border for quite a while, and I was able to safely make the trip down here, and I've been enjoying being cooped up in a different house with my parents for the past week. The other incredibly exciting thing is that I finally got my hands on a copy of the new Voices Together hymnal. And I will admit that I have spent much of the time that I should have been working on this homily just playing through hymns new and old from the new hymnal. So as this is the first Sunday of Advent, you're likely expecting this to be a homily on waiting. But today I would like to share a story with you that is a large part of my family's history. Um, and I would like to preface this by saying that some of the details of the story are a little bit unclear, so I'll do my best to let you know when the historical accuracy is in question. It's also a little bit of a grim story, but bear with me, there's a message of hope in the end. <laughs> so my grandfather, Ernie Kapler, was born in a house in no man's land in 1941. His older brother, Nick, was born a year earlier in Russia, and his younger brother, Bill, was born a year after Ernie in Germany. And they were all born in the same house in Kortica. So that type of chaos kind of set the tone for the next few years for these boys and their mother, my great-grandmother, Frida. My great-grandfather had been forced at gunpoint to join the Russian army, which as a Mennonite obviously was not on the top of his priority list. But he had known other Mennonites who had refused to join and been killed, so he went without a fight and was able to avoid the front lines. When the German army made it as far east as Ukraine in late summer of 1941, my great-grandfather switched over to the German army. For those of you who aren't as familiar with Russian Mennonite history in the World War II era, the German army were seen as liberators from communism. And all the horrific things that we think about when we hear German army in World War II were unknown to my great-grandfather at the time, although there were still nuances. So when the Russian army pushed the German army back um, past where my family had been living, Kurt helped Frida get the kids to Poland, where they were split up. At the time, Frida was pregnant. So uh, Frida and her three boys were in Poland for the a few months, and shortly after giving birth to her fourth baby, Erica, they were forced to flee. It was January, and unfortunately, Erica died from the cold. Frida left her boys with the soldier they were traveling with and went back to town to try to find someone to bury her. As she ran west to catch up with the group she was traveling with, the cold wind from the north froze the tears on the right side of her face, which left large scars. This detail is a bit graphic, but it was a symbol to her for much of her life and a constant reminder of the hard times she had. Eventually, Frida and the boys made it to Germany, where Nick, the oldest, developed TB and ended up in a sanatorium in East Germany. Frida and her other two boys continued on to the other side of Germany. When the war was over, Frida left Ernie and Bill in an orphanage and bribed her way back to the sanatorium in the now communist-controlled territory to get Nick. She didn't really expect to make it back alive, but she knew that she had to try to get her son. And she succeeded, and the boys were all reunited about a year later. Frida now had to make a decision that many women in this time did. Whether or not to leave Europe and start a new life elsewhere, or wait in Europe for her husband. She hadn't heard from him since they were in Poland years earlier, and Peter Dick eventually 
found um, my great-grandmother and her three boys and helped her get to Ontario, where she had a relative who could sponsor her in Brantford. So she decided to leave, and they arrived at Pier 21 in Halifax in 1946. Eventually, they moved to Kitchener, and she attended Ottawa Street Mennonite Brethren Church. She was a part of the women's Bible study group that met on Wednesday nights, and at first, she and the rest of the women would pray that they would be reunited with their husbands. After about a year of this, many of the other women gave up praying to be reunited with their husbands, but Frida just kept praying every Wednesday night at Bible study for 12 years. Even when the other women told her to stop because it was a lost cause, she didn't know it at the time, but it was not a lost cause. Now, let's backtrack in time a little bit and pick up on the story of my great-grandfather, Kurt. He just had a way of surviving. During the war, he worked as a mechanic and translator, and because of his skill, he was able to avoid being on the front lines. He was in Dresden when it was bombed and ended up in a coma in the hospital for weeks. When the war ended, and this is where details get a little bit fuzzy, he was captured by the Americans and then traded to the Russian army as a prisoner of war. He ended up in a concentration camp in Siberia, and 95% of people sent to that camp did not come back out alive. But somehow Kurt made it. Eventually, he was sent to a collective in Crimea where he lived in a boxcar and worked as a mechanic. And this is where their two stories finally reconverge. A relative of Frida, who had kept in touch with her, was in Crimea one day and saw Kurt. This relative wrote to Frida and, in code, told her that she had seen him. At this time, the KGB, or the Russian Secret Service, was monitoring mail and probably wouldn't have liked it very much if they had known that he was going to want to leave to be reunited with his family. So, when Frida received this letter, I cannot imagine what it must have been like for her. All of that time she had spent praying and hoping for reunification with her husband hadn't been a waste, despite what her friends may have told her. My great-grandparents were eventually able to be in touch with each other and write letters back and forth, but it was still years until they were able to see each other again. Every year, Frida and some men from the church would go to Ottawa to the Russian embassy and ask for Kurt to be allowed to come to Canada. And they would always say, you know, we're all for family reunification, so when you're ready to go back to Russia, you can go. It was almost five years um, before the Russian government finally let Kurt leave Russia, and in 1965 they were finally reunited after 21 years apart. And their story actually made it onto the front page of the KW record, which I think is just a fun little detail. Uh, so Advent is, of course, a time of waiting, but every year on the first Sunday of Advent we talk about waiting and anticipating the birth of Christ on December 25th, which we know is going to happen because time keeps moving. For us, there are no surprises, and it doesn't really take a lot of deep faith and hope to wait through the Advent season. For Frida, waiting for reunification with her husband came with no guarantees. For 12 years, her prayers for reunification were based on the faith she had that God could have kept Kurt alive for the past 16 years of war and its aftermath which, as I said earlier, was a feat of its own. And in the five years between when she knew that he was alive but hadn't convinced the Russian government to let him go, her prayers for reunification were still based on a faith not bound by an end date or a general time frame. 
This unshakable faith that Frida had, despite the immense number of uncertainties in the situation, is just absolutely incredible to me. I see many parallels between her faith and the faith of generations of people who had been promised a messiah or a savior in the Old Testament. Now, of course, I want to be cautious about comparing my great-grandfather to the savior, but let's focus on the faith and hope part of this story for now. So the first sign of a promise of a messiah or savior can be seen as early as Genesis and is referred to throughout the Old Testament in many instances. It is when the prophet Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and birth a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, that we hear loud and clear God's intention to send a savior. Isaiah goes on to prophesize about the Messiah, and we learn about the possibility of a savior who will be sent from God to preach the good news. The knowledge that this had been prophesied without a clear timeline, of course, did not stop people from having doubts. But there were those who waited with faith for the Messiah. The Israelites in exile held on to that promise, as we can see through the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. And when the Israelites were out of exile, Malachi even prophesied John the Baptist and his role in this whole story that we'll be focusing on in the next few weeks. So the story progressed for them throughout the generations, and the collective faith and anticipation about the coming Messiah became stronger as the prophets foretold more details. The faith that believers held, that God had the ability to send a Messiah, and that he would, is mirrored in the faith that my great-grandmother had, that God could have kept her husband alive, and that there was a possibility that God did. I also parallel this faith to the faith that Mary had in God when she was told that she would bear the Messiah. She knew that she had a long and hard journey ahead of her, and when she found out she was pregnant, she still rejoiced in the opportunity she had been given. When Frida got the letter from her relative, um, that faith that she had had in God, that she would be reunified with her husband, was given an even firmer foundation, but she was not done with the journey. So where in our lives do we need this kind of faith in times of waiting? The Israelites in exile, Mary as a literal child, fearing for her life as a pregnant and unmarried woman. My great-grandmother, who was reminded of the loss of her daughter in the perils of war by the scars she bore in her face. These people had all been through so much fear and would have had so many reasons to deny their faith. And yet they anticipated. The passage from Mark read for us today outlines a good piece of advice that I'd like to leave you with. But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man is coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So I promised myself that this would not be another COVID sermon but it's hard not to relate this theme to our current situation. We wait for news, and it feels sometimes like that darkness and suffering mentioned in Mark is upon us. We anticipate a return to normal life, um, a chance to be able to hug our extended family and friends, and a day where the news doesn't just report more daily death and suffering. And I will admit that some days I find it incredibly hard to have deep faith in this time of uncertainty. That passage in Mark continued to say, Therefore, keep awake. 
for you do not know when the master of the house will come in, in evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. So as we head into the season of Advent, try to take that with you, to keep awake. We wait and anticipate the Christmas season, yes, but we all wait and anticipate so much more. And what we wait and anticipate is not bound by December 25th as a date. So keep awake, wait, and have faith that God can, even if God hasn't yet. Even if it takes 12 years to centuries of unshaken faith, keep awake.